This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So I'm Aaron Edlin, and I'm the Richard Jennings Professor of Law and Professor of Economics here at Berkeley. Uh, And more important, I'm a member of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. And we are pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present uh, Professor Christopher Murray, who is our fall speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. Uh, As a condition of this bequest, we are obligated, but we are also extremely happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock was a physician for the Army, and he came to San Francisco during the Gold Rush, where he opened a thriving private practice. In 1855, he established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, who is still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship here at Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures with many extraordinary people over the years. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments at the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. And the fund allows us to bring to Berkeley leading scholars and public intellectuals. So we are glad to thank Charles Hitchcock and Lily Hitchcock Coit for helping us to bring to Berkeley scholars like Christopher Murray. We're extremely honored and pleased to have Professor Murray here with us today, especially as we're faced with global health challenges. Dr. Murray's Chair of Health Metric Sciences at the University of Washington and Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, His career has focused on improving population health worldwide through better evidence. He's a physician and health economist, and his work has led to the development of innovative methods to strengthen health measurement, analyze the performance of health systems, and understand the drivers of health, as well as producing forecasts for the future state of health. Many of you, I'm sure, became familiar with IHME forecasts early in the COVID epidemic, as I did. Dr. Murray has led critical analyses during the COVID-19 pandemic to understand its impact on health systems and the population as a whole, and the effectiveness of policy interventions to mitigate it. And the White House, European Commission, and many governments and organizations use his IHME's COVID-19 forecasts as a source of evidence. Dr. Murray also leads the Global Burden of Disease Collaboration, which we'll hear about today. It's an effort to quantify the comparative magnitude of health loss due to diseases, injuries, and risk factors by age, sex, and geography over time. 
It has a huge network of scientists, almost 10,000, 7,700 apparently, and decision makers from 156 countries who generate annually updated estimates. Professor Murray is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the 2018 co-recipient of the John Dirks Canada Gairdner Global Health Award. So without further delay, I'll present you Professor Christopher Murray. Great. Uh, thank you very much for that intro. It's great to hear the history of the Hitchcock um, endowment and lectures. And let's see if this presentation can live up to uh, those expectations. So I'm going to talk about the Global Burden of Disease Study, and I'm going to cover a number of details. Uh, it turns out this talk is timely because um, we're at the 30-year mark on this effort, and there's actually a paper or um, a viewpoint, a perspective in Nature Medicine next week that's really uh, the same as this uh, presentation. So fortuitous. So first off, what is this thing I'm talking about? And I think at the simplest level, I think of it as rules-based evidence synthesis for health or for global health. More specifically, what we're trying to do is provide everyone in the world a highly standardized set of measurements for every major disease, injury, and risk factor by each country, large countries at the state or province or regional level, and over time. So you get a time series view of health problems, and that's a good basis for thinking about what are current or future challenges that may emerge. The history goes back to the World Bank, very interestingly, because it was the World Bank in 1991 that uh, initiated the study asked myself and Alan Lopez to undertake the first assessment uh, because they wanted to inform their world development report for 1993, the first effort at um, the bank sort of having in their flagship publication one on health. But they found out that there was no standardized measurement of health outcomes, even death, and thus was born the idea that we needed a standardized approach. And that initial effort was really for eight large regions in the world, 100-plus uh, diseases, 10 risk factors, five age groups. And over the years, as demand for this from various types of decision-makers has grown, this effort has kept going uh, and has become this very elaborate, as I'll go into, effort to quantify uh, a very extensive set of outcomes. Not only do we provide this as a public good so that you can go online and I'll tell you how to find it if you are interested uh, and get a pretty nice snapshot of the last uh, 40 years of health trends in any place for any outcome you're interested in, but it's also produced a actually ever-growing set of peer-reviewed publications. We're running now close to just under 500 a year from this effort and nearly 2,000 since uh, 2010 or 2012. And that's a watershed, I think, for when the GBD effort became far uh, uh, more in uh, inclusive of investigators around the world. 
In addition to making data available to everybody as a public good, uh, publishing lots of articles in the academic literature, we have, as we've built this global effort, global collaboration, produced or have helped others, I should say, produce specific policy analyses on the burden of disease uh, for various governments. And here's a few illustrated for Singapore, for Portugal, for Norway. On this, other examples, this slide, other policy uses, whether it's a, a lot of sort of forward-looking planning exercises. Um, frequently, countries use the GBD results. And this is both for low-income, middle-income, and high-income countries. Uh, and I won't belabor all, all of them on this slide. And a last slide of examples um, that focus on uh, Nigeria, which was one of the more recent ones, where the analysis around the burden of disease in Nigeria was a part of a commission on health in Nigeria, which in turn led to the adoption of their new health insurance program. So a nice example of harnessing the sort of evidence to make a case in a particular place uh, for a, a set of policies that hopefully will eventually improve health. Um, and there's what's another interesting thing about the GBD is it's as much used in high-income, middle-income, and low-income countries. It's not just uh, in low-income countries or just in high-income countries. So we've seen quite a diverse set of uses. I'll come back to... India, Brazil, and Ethiopia at the end of this presentation. Now, if you're interested in what I'm going to talk about, you can just go online to healthdata.org, and everything that we have available, uh, you can query instantaneously with quite a lot of options to explore the data in a tool called GBD Compare. And this is just an example of a tree map uh, that uh, shows you the results of health loss in the world, uh, broken down into non-communicable diseases in blue and the communicable diseases in red and injuries in green. Uh, this tool, by the way, is in 14 languages for those of you who want to explore it in other languages as well. Now, what differentiates the GBD from other uh, either disease-specific or country-specific efforts, for which there are many, uh, is the adoption from the beginning of some core principles, some of which people find they don't like, but there's certainly enough that do like them that they continue to use them. And the one that's perhaps the most controversial is the notion of making best estimates. So unlike some institutions in the development world or in, in the international arena, um, that only report when, let's say, a government reports data, uh, we s believe that you, it's more useful for decision makers to have at hand your best estimate, uh, regardless of how much data is available in that place. And the premise there goes around to the idea that when you have no data, it's very easy in the policy uh, setting to equate no data to there is no problem. And perhaps one of the best illustrations of this was after the first round of, of GBD results that came out in the World Development Report in 1993 and then in publications in 1996, uh, we found a substantial burden due to mental health disorders, which had not been on anybody's policy agenda outside of high-income countries. Now, that, there were survey data from, let's say, 10 developing countries at the time, 
but we then make you know, statistical estimation for all countries and said, although there's no data in your country, it's very likely you have a substantial mental health problem, and that actually had a lot of impact on government's willingness to collect new data, but also to fund or, or think about policies around mental health. Now, this best estimate mindset has been adopted by many actors in global health. It's quite common at WHO now, uh, in part because of uh, the GBD, at UNAIDS, at UNICEF. But there are other institutions, the World Bank's a good example, where they do not do this except in certain areas. So you have a very um, you know, a mixed view of this best estimates principle, but it's core to how we go about our, uh, our work. The second principle is that it's very useful for more senior decision makers and for the public, actually, to get the comprehensive view of health. It's hugely valuable when somebody studies one topic in detail and can really uh, give you a lot of insight into, let's say, COVID or into um, gender-based violence or tuberculosis or cancer. But it's also very useful to have a comprehensive accounting. And so we have always sought to make our assessment truly global, all countries, uh, as well as a comprehensive set of diseases and injuries. So we have a, a, a cause hierarchy, which meets the criteria of mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. So we, every outcome is captured in that framework. And then we have a reasonably comprehensive, but not uh, the, as uh, the same approach on diseases for risk factors, because they risk factors can intersect and affect the same outcome, so you don't have that same necessity for a comprehensive, uh, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive list. So, you know, having that comprehensive view gives you lots of insights you would not otherwise have. And here's just an illustration. Uh, these are these tree maps that are on that tool, GBD Compare. And uh, it's our apex measure in the GBD process called the uh, Disability Adjusted Life Year. It's a, a measure of healthy life lost. And it's showing it for the world. Back in 1990, 44% uh, of the burden of disease was from uh, non-communicable diseases in the world. Go ahead two decades, it's up to 55%. And go ahead to 2020, you know, just in 10 years, you go up to 62%. But the orange box there, the communicable maternal and neonatal causes, is substantially larger because of the presence of COVID. So in the absence of COVID, we'd be up to 66% of all burden is now NCDs. So you get this perspective of this rapid epidemiological transition that's occurring. This is at the global level. Uh, it's also occurring pretty much everywhere outside of sub-Saharan Africa at this very accelerated pace, particularly South Asia and Southeast Asia and Latin America. And it is something that you only get that view from a, a comprehensive accounting. Another way to see that incredible speed of transition is to look at that same sort of detail, but now by age group. And this is just deaths, not years of life lost. So the y-axis is millions of deaths. This is back in 1990. The red colors are communicable diseases. The blue colors are the uh, cardiovascular diseases. And purple is diabetes. And green are the injuries. And you can see that there was still a lot of death in the world under age five. The first bar is the first week of life, then the next three weeks of life, then the next 11 months. Huge numbers of deaths in children. 
go to 2020, and the number of deaths under age five, except in that first week of life, is dramatically reduced, so extraordinary global progress. And we see this huge increase in deaths at older age, and now you can see in, in the sort of pumpkin color at the top the big burden of COVID that emerged in 2020. So this transition in the world is rapid. Uh, it has profound implications for most middle-income, some upper-low-income countries, and comes from this comprehensive view that we try to foster. Third core principle of how we've gone about this 30-year enterprise is a heavy, heavy emphasis on measurements that are comparable over time in the same country and across communities across states, across racial or ethnic groups, across countries. And comparability of measurement uh, may seem obvious. You know, I think economists always aspire to comparability of measurement in metrics like GDP. But frequently in public health, there hasn't been an emphasis on uh, comparability of measurement because coming from a sort of epidemic background, the thought was it only mattered if you sort of got the, the, the direction of, of travel correct. It didn't matter if you were actually making a comparable measurement uh, as long as you could tell what trend was. And I think the GBD has changed that view quite profoundly so that now uh, we do ensure comparability by re-estimating the entire time series over time uh, every time we have an update with new data or methods so that you can always make a meaningful comparison over time. So to illustrate that, here are for uh, six regions of the world. First column is Latin America, then the Caribbean. Uh, six regions in, in Latin America. The Andean countries, Central Latin America, Tropical Latin America, and then for comparison, the Middle East and North Africa. And this is diabetes. Top row is deaths. Middle is years of life lost. Bottom is years lived with disability, that measure of morbidity. And you see the different time series produced with different rounds of the GBD, the 2016 round, the 2017, the 2019, the 2021 round. And in some cases, they don't change very much, except we just add data points. But if you look carefully in a place like Middle East and North Africa, the death estimates, as well as in tropical Latin America, changed uh, even back in time to 1990, and that's because new data came to light that told us uh, much more accurately what was diabetes deaths back in uh, the earlier period of, of observation. So it makes many users somewhat confused because the past is changing, but it is our commitment to keep up with the evidence and re-estimate the time series. The last principle is to provide a, a series of summary metrics uh, for the burden of disease, and those are not just about death. A lot before the GBD came along, all global policy discussions in uh, global health were framed around death numbers or death rates. There was completely ignoring things that largely caused morbidity or disability, think mental health, musculoskeletal disorders, some uh, neurodegenerative diseases, uh, those were being ignored because we weren't counting loss of, uh, of health. And so a big emphasis from the beginning, from 1991, on the GBD was to try to capture in measures 
uh, the totality of health experience. And so we have all the traditional measures, disease incidence and prevalence and risk factor exposure, but we also produce these summary measures. Years of life lost due to premature mortality, years lived with disability, which is just disease prevalence times the public's view of severity. More on that in a moment. We put the two together, and that's our apex measure called DALIES, and then we compete, take all that information and compute a positive measure called healthy life expectancy. Now, people always ask, well, how do we compare apples and oranges? How do you compare time spent uh, with dementia versus time spent uh, you know, sick with um, COVID or time spent with um, you know, major depression? And the way we do that is we ask the public, and we have now collected in the last, I'd say, 12 years, more than half a million survey respondents around the world, uh, a big chunk of those, by the way, in China, but still uh, many countries uh, have been sampled. And the interesting thing about these questions where people are asked paired comparisons and which one represents a higher or lower state of health, the results are extraordinarily consistent even from rural Africa to the United States. Very different socioeconomic contexts, and yet the ordering of health states, or the, the healthiness of health states, if you will, that are derived from these surveys, remains r remarkably uh, consistent around the world, which is helpful for what we're trying to do. Another principle that we uh, try to emphasize a lot is sort of ground-truthing the results. Like, yes, we try to capture all the data, we have quite sophisticated Bayesian statistical models, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure that it reflects some ground truth. And we uh, try to address that both through various metrics of quality of the data to make sure that what we're doing or the data sources going in aren't uh, in some ways have a, some fundamental challenges. And we have a very large network of collaborators I'll speak about who help bring their knowledge of local context their knowledge that that particular survey or study or data source has some under-recognized bias. And we then have produced a variety of uh, internal consistency checks that go along with this commitment to face validity. So we require, because we're looking at this comprehensive view, we require that all the deaths due to a list of causes add up and equal all the deaths overall. Now, that may seem obvious, but until we came along, that was not the case. And if you added up what WHO said in the late 80s, there were three times as many deaths being claimed on the cause-specific estimates than the number of people actually dying. And so simple internal consistency requirements, which turn out to be quite complicated to sustain statistically, uh, make the modeling quite a bit more complex. But also, we believe that triangulation uh, leads to more coherent estimates. We do this for many other things as well, like we take the large body of surveys on anemia and the much smaller body of studies on anemia by cause. Think about malaria or hemoglobinopathies or iron deficiency, and we make the cause-specific anemias add up to all this bigger body of evidence on, on total anemia. Now, some of these examples there of when we take models, data and models by, di by disease, and then we force it to match what there's more data on, which is all-cause mortality. 
we then end up having to adjust the cause-specific estimates. And here's a uh, colorful graph called a heat map, just showing an illustration of this by age, by location on the rows for tuberculosis, where that exercise of triangulation, of, of internal consistency, to make it all work, we have to reduce the estimate, the first round estimates of, of mortality in Armenia in age group 10 to 14 by 16%, that sort of orangey box. And then in others, the, 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 that correction factor is really quite small. We also go through a very elaborate uh, review and governance structure for such a complicated multi-person effort. So we have across the 8,500 people that work on this study uh, globally, uh, a group picked from around the world across different disciplines that is internal to our collaboration, and they govern the, the study. And so this is called the GBD Scientific Council, and any change in methods must be approved by this group. And so there's, uh, you know, every month we meet and go through presentations of either of new data or methods or analysis, and that's the sort of internal review process. There's an external group independently funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation called the IAC that meets every six months to review our work. And so we go through a two- or three-day presentation of progress on different aspects of the GBD, and they give uh, useful uh, critique and suggestions for improvement in the future. And here's just the makeup of the IAC. It's chaired by Peter Piot, uh, who has stepped down from running the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, just this year. Okay, so that's a lot about what it is, what we're trying to do, some principles. What about the data? Where does the data come from? And so we have a quite structured approach to finding all the published studies on the epidemiology of any disease or any risk factor. And there's, for those of you who are in this field, know that there are guidelines for how you do that well. They're called the PRISMA guidelines. And we aspire to follow those. Um, then there's a large volume of household surveys that are conducted every year around the world, and we try to capture as many of those that are, are where the data can be made available. And then we go through and look for censuses, hugely important vital statistics by, on cause of death, cohort studies that may not have been published, but people are willing to share the data, and then the, the burgeoning volume of electronic health record and claims data that tells us about patients' interactions with the healthcare system. Lots of challenges in analyzing this data. We'll come back to the challenges. Here's just some illustrations. Here's the number of data sources in the latest round of the GBD uh, by country. So, you know, some countries like Canada or the U.S. or Mexico or Brazil or China, there are more than 2,000 and as many as 10,000 different data sources going into the analysis. That's also true in most of Western Europe. And then you have places like Mauritania where we may only have, you know, 300 data sources in the entire effort. Or, for, exact, for that example, Turkmenistan, North Korea, and Greenland uh, are the most data sparse overall. Now, we've learned early on that managing lots and lots of data sets, each, which, each of which can have you know, millions of records in a data set, is itself quite a uh, messy, time-consuming task. 
And so to reign in the chaos of this, we give each source, which may include lots and lots of measurements for lots and lots of people or many locations, but each source is given a unique identifier. We call it an NID. Uh, and that then allows us to trace the use of that source through all of the different steps of analysis. And here's just our accumulation of NIDs over the process of the, this online data bank called the Global Health Data Exchange, which you can go and use for your own work or interest, where we now have about 133,000, or last year it's now about 150,000, uh, NIDs for which the actual data set you can download uh, for about 88,000 of the 133,000 data sets. One of the key sources in the low and middle income world for those of you who have ever worked on public health data in those settings is the USAID funded demographic and health surveys. And here's just a map of how many of those we get by location which is a complex function of funding and other national interest, ranging from you know, one country, for example, that has 23 DHSs, the Peru stands out with their continuous DHS, to places where we've seen only uh, one or two uh, historically. Here is something that is absolutely critical for our understanding of health around the world, and that is cause of death data. And you'll see on this map very quickly that we have cause of death data that's pretty good for most of the world except sub-Saharan Africa, with the exception of South Africa, and then a few countries where, for strange reasons, because we know the data's there, but they don't release it in detail that can be used, places like Tunisia or Bolivia uh, that you know, do re register quite a few deaths, but they just don't release the data, to places like... Um, Pakistan, where there isn't really very good uh, vital registration. There's a sample scheme. Now, for those of you who are interested, again, in our commitment to uh, making public goods for people to use, uh, there is this tool called the Global Health Data Exchange, and if you're interested in Parkinson's disease in you know, Croatia, you can put that in, and you can find the data sources that exist on that disease uh, or risk factor. Now, just in case you're worried... Um, that there's a lot of bad data out there, which there certainly is. Uh, a, the reason that there are more than 8,000 people involved in the GBD right now has a lot to do with trying to evaluate source by source the quality of the data. And that there's a, there's still always, I think, when you're looking at data quality, there's a very objective part. You know, what is the sampling frame? What was the respondent uh, rate? What was the assay used? What was the sensitivity or specificity of the assay or the instrument? And then there's a, a subjective component that, oh, people suspect that either the results are anomalous or the interviewers in the rainy season didn't go to certain villages or due to conflict they couldn't sample in whole provinces. There's a long list of reasons. And then there are, you know, frank efforts to um, contaminate or, or manipulate data, which, by the way, are pretty easy to detect because it's actually quite hard to make up data that meets a series of tests. Um, now, because we get so, much, so many different sources of data, we have to, uh, what we do call crosswalk, we have to go from the sources as they come and map them into if the data had been collected in what we think is the reference or the, the, the preferred way. 
So think about measuring diabetes. There's some 20 different methods of measuring diabetes in a survey in the community that are out there. And there is a WHO standard. And so we try to map each of those alternative measures statistically into the more desired uh, measurement approach. And so, you know, in that effort at crosswalking or mapping, uh, we end up evaluating the overall quality of systems. And here's an example of something you can go online and find, which is our regular assessment of the quality of cause of death and verbal autopsy, which is an alternative to actual registration of death, where in a survey you go ask people structured questions. What, what's our assessment of the quality of cause of death data? So we not only produce best estimates, but we try to tell the user how much data is there and what is the quality of that data. And you can see, again, this very income-related challenge on cause of death data where low resource settings, the quality of the data on cause of death is poorer, the very places where the death rates are often the highest. So another dimension on the GBD is this sort of ever-expanding scope. We keep adding more subnational detail. We keep taking residual categories in the cause list, like other cardiovascular disease, and pull out and try to make more specific analyses for more detailed causes. And every round of the GBD, there's people who make proposals to add more detail. For each disease, we not only take a, take a disease like diabetes, we also look at all the clinical outcomes associated with that disease. So we call those sequelae. So we have about 3,500 sequelae we estimate for uh, covering all the different outcomes for a disease process. We cover 88 risks, 25 age groups, and now a time series of 41 years. So what that means is that we now produce about 60 billion estimates each round of the GBD. And the, the, the graph on the right is just the growth of the detail from that first World Bank-sponsored study estimating for 1990 to where we are now. Now, anybody who's tried to make sense of extremely messy data has come up uh, on some of these eight problems. These are quite general we have lots of places with no data or very sparse. Maybe even more problematic, we have places where there's two studies and one says 10% uh, have you know, uh, dementia and the other one says 0.1%, which is right. So conflicting data where it's not sampling. These are fundamentally widely non-overlapping uncertainty intervals or confidence intervals. We have lots and lots of variety in case definitions, uh, cause of death definitions across countries over time, in the assays, in the instruments. You know, there's two dominant ways to measure physical activity in the world, uh, and the, the two approaches are really hard to align with each other. We have lots, uh, everyone, everyone in the quantitative fields are trained in techniques to deal with sampling error, so that's a familiar territory for people. But in health data, we have a much bigger problem, which is all the non-sampling error, all the other things that lead to noisy measurement, whether it's how you trained your interviewers, how long is the instrument, uh, how long is the recall, uh, to you know, administrative incentives when we use uh, data from health service providers. 
Problem number five that we run up a lot is there are certain groups that are often excluded from data systems or partially excluded. Often the poor have less access. So as people have pushed for more and more use of health service data, you have to grapple more and more with the challenge that some groups may be uh, underrepresented in those data sets. Another problem that we face is because we write these models or make these models to fill in for the sparse or missing data, uh, those models are much better if we have predictors of the outcome that are good predictors. And for some cases, like cardiovascular disease, across you know, uh, metabolic disorders, smoking, alcohol, diet, physical activity, uh, we have tremendously good predictors. So even if we have no direct data, we probably have a very good handle on heart disease, whereas for suicide, we have very poor predictors, uh, both over time and across place. We have lots of uh, cases where measurements look anomalous, and the challenge is, is it a measurement problem, or is it a true outlier in the sense that something special has occurred in that population, leading to very high or very low rates? And I think that's probably one of the thorniest problems, which is sifting from what's really interesting, those outlier, true outliers from you know, extreme cases of measurement error. And then we do have, as people push the burden of disease tech methods down to the county or race ethnicity level in places like the U.S., we have uh, you know, extreme small number problems. And over the, especially over the last 15 years, uh, there has been researchers at, at, in as part of this collaboration and at IHME in particular that have developed a series of uh, Bayesian statistical uh, tools uh, that I won't go through the alphabet soup that have been produced and published and are now sort of regularly kept up to date. We have a new meta-regression method, for example, as part of this suite that will be published next week in Nature Medicine that sort of extends um, dose-response meta-regression so that it's more useful for some of the work in the GBD. I'll skip over that. Okay, so this is sort of this evolution where the methods, uh, uh, you know, the why did we make this big change in methods starting about 15 years ago? And it was really driven by the advent of um, cheap statistical power. So before that, I think it was difficult for us to uh, estimate some of the Bayesian models that we would like to have estimated. And so there was a real shift in approach to these Bayesian methods, driven in part by the affordability of computation. Like many universities, uh, and, and specific to IHME, we have quite a large computational cluster uh, that supports some of those tools. Now, at the same time we were making that big shift in methods and approach, we also uh, made our collaboration for the GBD much broader. So it started with a very small group at Harvard and the World Health Organization in the early 90s, and then uh, the home base was at WHO for a period, and that group expanded. And then as it, uh, the home base for the study uh, ended up being here at, uh, not here, at the University of Washington at IHME, the, uh, we made a major push to broaden participation. 
So now we have about 8,500 collaborators from 161 countries with very large self-organized groupings in certain countries where they have spun off and done lots of more detailed analyses, and then a number of sort of medium-sized groupings, and then you know, places with only one, two, or five uh, collaborators. The collaboration is growing on a pretty much a linear basis. So percent growth, fortunately, is uh, given just the process of getting people engaged and trained to participate. But to give you an idea what this means for us is when we write a paper, we publish a paper in you know, one of the, the many hundreds each year on uh, burden attributable to different risk factors of cancer. Uh, probably 1,500 authors. Those 1,500 authors that participated in that project uh, generated some 15,000 comments on the first manuscript. And so the, the exercise of team paper writing and balancing out the, the insights and critiques from such a large number of collaborators is itself a whole interesting process in team science. So we have, and we're not, we don't really have a strategy to deal with this steady growth uh, in participants in the study. For those of you interested in, you know, which countries have the most, it turns out to perhaps not be what you would have expected. The top five are Iran, Ethiopia, U.S., India, and Australia, then U.K., Italy, but then China, Pakistan, Brazil, Indonesia, Nigeria come next. So we've had uh, really very good success in getting investigators in low- and middle-income countries to also participate in this effort. So we're, we view the uh, collaboration as a critical resource for the study, and it's part of why we think um, it uh, is as useful as it has become. Now, anything as ambitious as this enterprise over the, the last 30 years uh, have, has lots and lots of limitations. And I want to like, highlight some of the bigger ones uh, because, of course, if you pick any given disease or risk, you could make a much longer list of limitations. So most obvious, there are still lots and lots of uh, data Gaps, lacunae, and really the solution for that is not better estimates, uh, which we'll certainly try to keep trying to do, but it's also helping um, make the case for filling in those data gaps uh, through improved national data systems. There's a very nice um, viewpoint that will be coming out in Nature Medicine next week with this package of papers that we have. Uh, from the Minister of Health in Ethiopia, uh, sort of making exactly that point, that uh, the, the, the GBD has been useful in Ethiopia, but it's also been useful as a catalyst for identifying these data lacunae. Secondly, we have found, like many, that communicating uncertainty to decision makers is challenging. And it may be they're right and we're wrong, uh, it may be that uncertainty intervals are of ex huge importance and interest to the research community, but you know, risk-neutral decision makers may legitimately say they just don't care. They're going to take your your you know expected value or your midpoint estimate and and act on that. And that's what in fact they do. And we saw this by the way during COVID uh, in real time, just how 
Uh, uncertainty intervals on forecasts weren't really relevant to most users, um, but very highly relevant to the academic community. Third, uh, there's a lot of scrutiny about what are the primary data sources on one end, and lots of debate about how you could tweak models to make them better, and papers and vigorous discussion, but there's a huge chunk of activity in the middle that gets very little discussion and scrutiny, which is what we think of as data processing. So think on the cause of death data. You get in all this vital statistics, but you have to go through this step of dealing with uh, what we call garbage codes in the cause of death data, where somebody has assigned a death to something you can't die from. Yellow nails is, a, is a, an example, or you know, general atherosclerosis or general heart failure. These are not specific causes. And so there's a huge processing step that goes into going from the raw data to something that you should model, and that doesn't get as much discussion, debate, and scrutiny as we think it should. Fourth, to deal with sparse data, our requirements for consistency, the mathematically required relationships that exist between, between past disease incidents and the number of people who have disease today, <clears throat> those relationships between how many people have a disease and the excess risk they have by having that disease and observed death rates. In order to capture all those relationships, we by nature end up with highly complex methods that some people really don't like. They want simplicity. But our argument is that um, simplicity at the cost of validity is not a great trade-off. There isn't really a case to be made to do something simple just for the sake of simplicity if it makes it worse. If, it, if you get the same validity, then by all means we should seek to be simple. Another limitation, one that we still haven't really grappled with in any real way, but I think is starting to come out in, in many debates, um, is how generalizable are risk-outcome relationships? So we have a set of relationships, let's say, between uh, eating red meat and heart disease, and they're studied in certain populations, often white populations in high-income countries, and how generalizable is that risk-outcome relationship? And I think there are now literature questioning some of the generalizability for certain Exposures, and that's something that we have not fully captured. We do it for two risks only. Let that risk-outcome relationship vary by population because there's enough evidence to support that. The number six is this sort of perennial debate we have where sometimes our results disagree with expert cons uh, consensus statements on a topic. And, uh, you know, again, going back to that mantra that we have of rules-based evidence synthesis, we have no mechanism of directly capturing people's opinion. We have to go from data, data processing, to results, but we're very happy to change the rules about what data gets in and how we analyze them. But we, we often, not often, but sometimes we'll have come up to a different conclusion and that's probably a marker for where further research and debate should take place. And then, as I've mentioned, there's just a huge list of disease-specific limitations. Let me round out uh, the presentation with two topics. One is the, what's happened from our spontaneously organizing large sets of collaborators uh, in three countries. So in Ethiopia... 
Uh, we've had a very active leader at the Ethiopian Public Health Institute for the collaboration, Awoke, and he has managed to organize hundreds of academics across universities and people in the government, and they have created a thing called the National Data Management Center and then a burden of disease unit there. And then they have been driven by a very close relationship with the Minister of Health, and not just the current minister, Leo Tedesse, but the, the, the two ministers before, uh, to, to make this collaboration serve specific policy questions that come up. Examples of what they produced, uh, they published this year their subnational paper, uh, which you know, also had a very strong participation from the government in that publication, not just the academics. Uh, they're producing or have produced an atlas at the subnational level of health problems. And then they've been working on uh, three policy documents. One is the sort of essential benefits package for the government, a health sector transformation plan, and then um, how to help inform national health accounts. In Brazil, uh, the model's slightly different. They've had a very long-running collaboration. Uh, they're very self-organized. Uh, and what they have done is created a collaboration which I think we're most impressed by the fact that it survived the, the big change in government from, uh, uh, you know, from left to right in the government, and yet they stayed both in active collaboration and used by government. And so that sort of stability of the collaboration in the face of major government uh, change is really uh, super important. They are extremely industrious on producing uh, studies as part of the GBD network. And you know, take the basic uh, number crunching that we support the network with and turn it into more meaningful analyses and policy documents. They just put out this year, the second time around, they've done this, a very large set of papers, 23 in all, representing a large number of institutions in Brazil and academics in Brazil um, on 23 different disease risk factor topics. Um, that was another testament to their ability and this, this general success of the GBD in fostering the sort of national efforts. In India, the effort is a tripartite effort led by Lalit Dandona, who has appropriately appointments in three institutions, IHME, the Public Health Foundation of India, and the Indian Council of Medical Research, where they have both been publishing papers but also writing policy documents. One of the leaders of this collaboration uh, moved on to become the health person in the planning ministry, now called Niti Ayog, and so there's been a very direct input from the GBD work in India into government planning. And right now, um, they have continued uh, focusing on certain diseases. And the very interesting exercise right now of using our new suite of long-range forecasting uh, methods to look at specific scenarios for the government of India, time for the 75th anniversary of India, and saying what may happen, how, what might the next quarter century for India look like if you pursue different packages of policies. A little bit on where we're going. Uh, it's been an interesting exercise in trying this really large team science effort. And we've learned lots of things along the way, uh, lots of things that we hope we will 
do better, uh, the demand for what the collaboration produces and the interest in participating in it just grows steadily. Uh, but what we would like to see is more of the analyses that, for example, are going into the, the Brazil or Ethiopia or Indian examples. The actual you know, running of the models uh, is done in uh, local institutions. And so we have a plan over the next five to ten years in this collaboration to increasingly decentralize the, some of the estimation while always fixating on those principles I started with, which is the comparability and the quality. And so we are um, trying to build tools that allow for that sort of uh, more distributed analytic approach. The second big area, and one that's probably the, the, the lesson we learned from COVID, which is policymakers really can understand and use alternative scenario forecasts in a very uh, specific, actionable way. And so we published for the first time in 2017, and then again in 2019, our long-range forecasting framework. I will not go through it tomorrow. I will talk a lot more about the future and what we both see coming and you know, what are the challenges for doing this in any credible way, uh, and then what we can do about the future. Uh, so that's going to be uh, very much more on what do, we, what do we think we see coming and what can we do about it. But it's just part of our very strong emphasis on building up this set of alternative forecasts so that decision makers can try to see the magnitude of risk from climate change in the context of antimicrobial resistance, in the context of um, you know, low fertility, or uh, interstate conflict, or new pandemics. Another direction, which is sort of following a theme, is not only looking at the burden of disease at the subnational level, but now we have an NIH cooperative program to estimate the burden of disease by county race ethnicity group. And here's just an illustration of that. Uh, this is still looking at deaths, not the totality of burden, but that's eventually going to come. So we produce for uh, five OMB, uh, the, the 1997 race ethnicity groups, separate discussion about getting to a more detailed race ethnicity group. But for now, the five shown here, uh, white non-Hispanic top left, black non-Hispanic in the middle top, American Indian, Alaska Native on the top right, Asia Pacific Islanders top left, and Latino on the bottom, and then total on the right, and this is one cause, HIV AIDS. We have this for several hundred causes. Um, and you can see very quickly how a lot of variation in HIV is related to race and ethnicity, but even within black non-Hispanics, there's extraordinary variation with super high rates in the southeast, in, in Florida and South Georgia, and selected places in California, and then in places like uh, Mississippi, you know, comparatively lower rates. So lots of interesting food for thought for why uh, explaining what we see. So this phase of the work is highly descriptive. It's that this is what we see. It's a time series back to 2000. We see lots of interesting trends where things are getting worse for some causes in parts of the country. And there's a parallel project, not part of the GBD, uh, but also at IHME, to look at health spending by disease, by race, ethnicity, and county. So we will be able to compare a time series of spend with a time series of outcome. And I think that opens up a lot of interesting 
uh, difference in difference type analyses where, you know, this place spent a lot more on diabetes, what did you get for it compared to a place that did not? Another map here is interpersonal violence, a uh, very different spatial pattern than what we saw for HIV, uh, and, you know, very much uh, very high rates in certain AIAN communities and some high rates in black non-Hispanic communities. Last on this list of new things is our, uh, what's being launched next week, is we've introduced to help the public decision makers and research funders understand how strong is the evidence supporting risk outcome relationships. We call this the burden of proof risk function analysis. And at the end of the day, we end up giving a star rating to each relationship between a risk factor and an outcome. Uh, and there is some nice open source new meta-analytic tools that support this, as well as a sort of almost philosophical piece in nature medicine as to why we're doing this to help people navigate the constant confusion in the media as, you know, is red meat good for you, is red meat bad, and, and opinions changing from week to week. So that's coming out next week and will progressively be built into the, the annual assessments of um, the GBD. There's an online tool where you can not only get the overall result, but you can drill in and see all the studies that are, exist in the published literature on you know, a, a factor, let's say red meat, and an outcome, let's say colon cancer, and see exactly what our knowledge is, how messy, how heterogeneous it is, and why we say, for example, that relationship is, is a rather weak one. It's a one or a two-star relationship. So hopefully that will make the GBD uh, useful even for individuals trying to navigate the uh, choices for themselves on these risk factors so that you can have this sort of more comprehensive view that's not driven by whatever the latest study that's been published. So let me just end and then open it up for questions um, for, you know, just what is it that we've been doing and hope to keep doing for the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, and that's a global collaborative effort that continuously tries to uh, improve data, methods, ease of use, transparency, and utility for uh, everybody's decision-making from individuals to, to governments. So thank you very much for this sort of uh, look at the GBD over the last 30 years. And there's a... Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the decision-making. Um, so who are the consumers of this data? What kind of actions are they taking? Um, and where, where is it all headed? Maybe long-term, 15, 20 years out. Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, the, we started with a view that the primary users were uh, people in planning departments of, you know, departments of health, ministries of health, or ministers of health, right? Because there's a series, you know, there's this, there, before people even decide to adopt the policy, they first have to consider the policy options. People don't consider policy options until they think there's a problem. And so that agenda-setting part, it turns out there's enormous use of what we produce for helping set agendas. You know, mental health was not even, people weren't even talking about policies in Mexico for mental health because there was no discussion of mental health until, you know, it suddenly became 
uh, put on the map, so to speak. And so we've seen that over and over for different diseases. It's also why uh, we get so heavily lobbied by groups who are trying to get a disease or a problem put on the agenda, because if it's not in the burden of disease, then now we've got to the point there's such widespread use of this study that maybe they can't break through to get attention. So, for example, we recently added, again, a five-year effort uh, funded by the British government and the Wellcome Trust and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We extended the GBD to include antimicrobial resistance, you know, superbugs, who's dying from those. And it was driven by their desire to let people see how bad antimicrobial resistance was as a problem in comparison to all the other problems. So high-level decision-making, agenda-setting, um, it's an input to other types of analyses that governments make uh, when, for example, they're looking at evaluation of what's happened. The time series we produce is very useful. So there's a, another constituent that says, you know, we funded a lot of these programs. Did it, they were meant to reduce, you know, child deaths from diarrhea. Did child deaths from diarrhea go down? Uh, you know, there's a lot of sophistication that should go into would they have gone down anyway or would they have gone up, et cetera. But, you know, the starting point is this, the, the descriptives. As time's gone by, we found the, the users or the audiences has broadened. So we now have many NGOs who use the burden of disease in the locations where they're, they're trying to work to help figure out what programs they should deliver. And some even have built it into how they manage their organizations. So uh, PSI is an example. It's a, it's a big NGO that works in the reproductive health space uh, in many parts of the world. And they internally manage and uh, allocate resources by what they think is the burden that each program, as measured by us, uh, is reducing. So lots and lots of examples of that. And then I think as we've gotten more into uh, risk factors than our COVID experience is there's a lot of general public interest in these. So we have, you know, the star rating on the risk outcomes is as much for the general public as it is for anybody else. Uh, you know, we'd like, in the, as time goes by, to have uh, active, you know, you know well-organized collaborations in every country in the world who are both doing, you know, harnessing good science to do the best measurement that, that feeds into this sort of global view in, in a comparable way, but also feeds more directly into local decision makers. Because I think our experience in many is, is, unless there's local ownership, it's unlikely to be acted on, right? Which is why we've put so much emphasis on growing this collaboration. Other questions? Um, I had two questions. How many people are currently working at IHME? And given that the data gathered here could play a very important role with governments uh, when they come to policy decision-making, I wanted to understand what are the quality checks that go into data collection and consistent management of that? Sure. We, we're 500 people at IHME, uh, only half of whom work on the GBD. Right, so it's about 250 all, all comers on the GBD. Uh, some people, you know, work partly on the GBD. Uh, and then in terms of the, the sort of quality steps, depending on the type of source, there are different quality evaluations. So if it's a household survey, there's a sort of standard set of metrics we look at around response rates, 
based on the each specific indicator that comes from a source, then uh, we also look at you know sort of the face validity of some of the results. Um, so it's not as simple as just looking at survey level metrics. When it's vital statistics, there's a set of techniques to evaluate completeness. These are called death distribution methods that were developed in the 1980s, 70s and 80s by demographers. So we evaluate how complete, what percent of deaths are captured. We look at the fraction of deaths that are assigned to garbage codes. And if it's too high, we don't use the data. And then we also look at how detailed an aspect of the international classification of disease has been used. And that all goes into that, that star rating for cause of death data. And so that gets done each cycle. And then in other areas and, and disease-specific surveys, we do uh, other types of checks. For um, claims data, there's a, there are a similar side of sort of standardized metrics as well. With apology for late arrival, uh, giving a global uh, burden of disease, just a little bit of research. It looked like it was uh, World Bank commissioned. Um, so I'm wondering, one question is, was there uh, an earlier attempt that failed or didn't take, or was that the kind of the first and the, the good attempt at it and it's held? And the other part of the question is, uh, it sounds like it's been institutionalized by the World Health Organization with uh, participation of Harvard. And I'm wondering what other institutional and or university uh, um, entities might be at, at work or in, in strong support of the of the concept and the work. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, I covered a bit of that at the beginning. Uh, it's been one study the whole time. Uh, it started by the bank. And then the initial round was based, you know, two people, myself at Harvard and Alan Lopez at the World Health Organization, who were the initial, we were the initial drivers of that with a very small team. And it has just steadily grown. And so now it is this you know, eight and a half thousand person collaboration. Uh, we have formal agreements with WHO as part of that, but also with, you know, many, many institutions that are part of uh, that collaboration. Uh, and so it has become this sort of uh, global standard for, for health measurement. Uh, now, there are certain parts where there's alternative measurements that are produced. Uh, so, for example, maternal mortality, HIV, TB, some childhood illnesses, there are alternative multi-country global estimation efforts. Uh, but for 95% of diseases and risks, uh, the GBD is really the only source, for better or for worse. Yeah, I wanted to say thank you so much for the presentation. It's really helping me get through the last hours of this um, Yom Kippur fast. Um, I've got a couple questions. One of them is related to when you said that it's hard, or it's hard, or one of the challenges in collecting, there's a challenge in collecting data when, say, a country is involved in a conflict or something. So maybe regarding the case study for Ethiopia, have you found, like, or what are the ways you get around, say, having a violent conflict in the country? Uh, you know, I think the, the, the group there. Uh, face lots of challenges with the war. Um, and even now, just 
going about their work with the, the conflict. Um, so very challenging for them. Uh, you know, it is what it is in the sense of the data that they can get a hold of. And so for some parts of the country, this was very true for certain provinces in Afghanistan, even before a year ago, um, that you have very little data. So then you are depending on the statistical models to sort of guess for you what's going on there. Now, the, the conflict part per se, people dying directly from conflict, um, is a separate analysis. So we have, there's a separate analysis of what are called non, you know, fatal discontinuities, where the source of data going into the, the work is not government statistics, because they don't work for conflicts, or in that, for that matter, often for some natural disasters. And so, intriguingly, the main source of data for measuring what's happening in conflicts due to conflict are news reports. And there's a group in Sweden that does the best work, but we look at all the different groups that have been trying to collect those sort of news-reported items. Um, and there's some rules about which ones you believe. They have to be very specific. It has to be an event on a given day in a given place with a certain number of people affected. But even then, it's just a huge, you know, it's, it's a very uh, challenging topic to figure out conflict deaths. Wait, what, what's the Swedish group called? Oh, my goodness. Um, I am blanking, sorry. Uh, but I can certainly find out for you. And I guess the other question, you brought up just a moment ago that with something like COVID, you were able to get a lot of like public interest and public engagement. I'm also wondering with diseases that are less or gain less attention than COVID, like say malaria, are you able to get public interest or really like spread information to the public for those diseases? Or does it, does it end up being like more attributable attributable to people who suffer from those diseases or are impacted by them? You know, the success of gathering global attention um, depends uh, on, to some extent on, on success with the media, whether local media in a particular place or global media. And, you know, you might hope that that wasn't the case, but it is. And so we do spend a lot of time, as do many groups who are trying to help shape agendas, um, thinking about various ways to get attention uh, in the media. And it, it, is, it turns out to be the case that the reason, if your primary endpoint is you know, making the world a better place and trying to change policy in some direction for the better, uh, the, you may not care about the media, but it is this vehicle to impact. And then in turn, it turns out that it's easier to get media for malaria, for TB, or for any disease uh, if there is a uh, scientific publication that explains why you're trying to get the media's attention. And that's even better when it's in a top-tier journal. So there is this ecosystem that says if you... Not all things that are in top-tier journals interest the media, but if you really want to get a lot of media interest, there's exceptions, but generally, over the long haul, uh, you do want to publish in Lancet, JAMA, New England Journal, Science, Nature, uh, and, and then use that as a way. And then there, you need to follow that up with more targeted 
outreach to policymakers once they've sort of, oh, there's something in the media I should pay attention to. Uh, this may be a question you will address tomorrow, but um, I wonder if you could say anything about how, thinking about risk factors, how you will address climate change as a risk factor. It's very complicated. There's direct and indirect impacts. I see that you have included uh, non-optimal temperatures lately. So any words about that? Yeah, I mean, I think like so many uh, groups, uh, we are spending much more time thinking about climate and how to capture that in the GBD, which we've got some parts, as, uh, as you mentioned, uh, but also, more importantly, how we capture it in the forecasts. And so, you know, we've got uh, risk curves now, which I'm sure can be strengthened and improved with more data, for temperature and 17 diseases. And then I think there'll be a debate about some other diseases where the evidence is sort of equivocal. Um, then there is um, the question for the forecasting about other pathways. Um, and so we are exploring various ways that you can get some of the relationships between population, health, climate, economy, and then back to health, right? So some of those sort of um, broader effects. And so pretty active area for, for research for us. And we're trying to collaborate with a number of the other groups, uh, you know, some even based around here, like the Climate Impact Modeling Group. Um, I'm just wondering if you could speak um, about anything you guys might be doing specifically around dementia, and if you could uh, maybe give any advice to somebody who's just starting in that area of research or point to any uh, resources that, that you know of that might be helpful? Yeah, we have quite a, uh, uh, a sort of in-depth effort on dementia. Uh, and we are launching with a, a number of partner organizations a, a brain health initiative where we will put, you know, not just the sort of measurement of current burden, but looking at, at the, the forecasting around uh, brain health. And that, sort of, of course, includes dementia. Um, so on that area, interesting things. Uh, there's lots of interest, but lots of measurement challenges on mild cognitive impairment. Uh, there's lots of outstanding debates on the mix of Alzheimer's versus other dementias versus, you know, mixed. I think that's a pretty open area. Lots of value in understanding that more. Um, you know, we've started risk factors for dementia, you know, trying to, usual thing, systematize the published studies, look at other cohorts that we haven't seen. So there's a lot of potential work that would be interesting on on the epi side of, of the risk factors for dementia. You know, we know education, but what are some of the other ones that are large? Uh, and then on the health economics side or the spend side, there's quite a, an interesting set of studies um, underway of where does money, how much is direct care, how much is informal care, how much is, you know, uh, lost productivity for early dementia. So, yeah, I mean, the, the two people at our end, uh, well, there's uh, several, but on the, on the more economic side, Joe Dielman and then uh, Theo Voss, who, who sort of oversees the, the epi work on dementia. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. 
For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.